When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The Best in the World podcast with Richard Parr. Hello and welcome to The Best in the World with Richard Parr. Now, it's a real honour on this show to speak to the Olympic champions and world champions that I do and get to learn from on this show. And I would say that 99% of them, if not 100% of them, are all absolutely lovely. They're all a pleasure to deal with and I really appreciate the time that they give me on this programme. And don't worry, I'm not about to say my next guest was a nightmare. No, quite the opposite. JCJ Anderson is my guest this week, and he was an absolute delight. And we get a decent amount of time with JCJ. I think we speak for about 40 minutes on this interview. But I actually got to speak to JC for a good 15, 20 minutes before we started. Spoke for a good 5, 10 minutes afterwards. And he was just asking questions as much about what we're doing here at The Best in the World, but also about me and my life. And we were just having a, a really good conversation. And, and this is a man who, as you'll hear from on this podcast, is very busy, you know. If he's not training, if he's not at his farm, if he's not working on snowboards, if he's not doing things with his family, he is a very, very busy man. So I really did appreciate all the time I could get from him. And he is such a positive man, and it was so great to speak to him on this week's best in the world and you'll learn a lot from jcj on this week's podcast and he does admit the sacrifices he's now made for results in order for him to gain more information to help improve the snowboards that he now creates for his company he talks about his hopeful appearance at the next olympics he's been at five already he also talks about how a clown helped him learn to ski he also talks about his lucky socks that he wore at the 2010 Vancouver Games when he became the parallel giant slalom gold medalist. He also talks about what his mother had to say to him before those games. It's a really interesting conversation with JCJ. He's really strong on talking about perspective, not just in sports, but in life itself. And it's something that we can certainly learn from in our everyday lives on this week's Best in the World with Richard Parr with the snowboarding Olympic champion, JCJ Anderson. Just before we get to episode 92 of the Best in the World with Richard Parr, I just want to tell you about 99designs. 
99 designs gives you the opportunity to get anything you need created designed by talented freelancers from all around the world it's a product i've personally used i got the sportachino logo designed by 99 designs and you can check out their service as well by going to sportachino.com forward slash 99 designs and if you do end up using their full service we will get a percentage of the money that you pay them so you'll be supporting our show as well as getting an amazing design and one of the really cool features about this company is if you're not happy with what they've designed in the early stages you can get your money back go and check them out that's sportachino.com forward slash 99 designs and their website's got a full page of terms and conditions as well so you can really check that out if you want to make sure before you buy anyway let's get to it let's get to the conversation with the snowboarding olympic champion it's jcj anderson the best in the world podcast with Richard Parr. JCJ Anderson, welcome to the best in the world with Richard Parr, Olympic snowboarding champion. So great to have you on the program. Now, one of the things we like to do is to really find those 1% differences, those 1% gains, which turn a silver medal into a gold medal. And of course, you had amazing success at the Vancouver Games. And one of the things I also ask is about superstitions. And I've got to start this interview. I very often start it about uh, early life or what you're up to now. But I want to know, JCJ, what's the deal with the socks? That's hilarious. (laughs) I'm actually not even a a superstitious guy. Um, I had these socks that I just... You know what? I am um, uh, a recycler. So if something's good and it works, I won't change it. Um, and these socks were good, good socks. Uh, I think Lang ski boots, uh, had them back in the day. I, cause you're, you're digging back here and, uh, <laughs> I've had quite a long career. So at one point it just kind of blends into one, uh, era. In this case, it was in the nineties when I got these socks, probably even early nineties. And they just stayed with me for all these years, uh, until 2010. And the, when people ask me if I was superstitious, obviously not. Uh, but then <laughs> I said, you know what? Weird enough, the only thing that's stuck with me through my whole career so far is these socks, which would be the last thing you would think. <laughs> um, but they did well in the, wash, uh, in the washing machine, and they, uh, they worked. And they were, they were purple, right? <laughs> embarrassingly yes purple and turquoise, purple and turquoise. <laughs> the worst colors for, uh, for nowadays I guess back in the 90s those were the colors <laughs> and do you still have them uh, yeah I still have them I, I can't throw them out I don't know I'm, I'm attached to them somehow I don't wear them anymore but I still have them I, I can see a collector in, in about 50 years trying to buy those socks it's a, it's it's Olympic Hilarious. it's an Olympic history memorabilia there. <laughs> For his safety, I, I wouldn't recommend it. <laughs> <laughs> let's uh, let's talk about your early life and how you you first got started in in the sport and and on the snow and uh, <clears throat> again doing a little bit of research. Tell me if I'm wrong, but 
your your parents were both ski instructors, but your mum had to be a little bit innovative to get you on the skis to begin with. Is that true? Yeah. Uh, again, you're digging memories that I, <laughs> I don't recollect much, obviously. Uh, I might have been two or three when I got on skis and uh, really wasn't into it. Uh, <laughs> it was, you know, it, it, where I live in Canada, it gets really cold. Um, so if it's minus 20 on my first day of skiing, it's probably not going to be a great day. Um, and I just remember, you know, wanting to snuggle with my mom. That was about it. So she had me in between her legs and she took me down the hill. Uh, but I just couldn't wait to get somewhere warm. (laughs) (laughs) And, but my parents taught skiing again and, Basically, anything before the 80s, I find, was pretty rough years uh, for skiing in Quebec, especially Tremblant. You can get days that are, uh, with the wind factor, right around minus 70 degrees Celsius. It just gets so cold. Um, with climate change and global warming, we haven't seen those much. Uh, it gets really cold, like minus 40, but um, we haven't seen those temperatures like back in the 70s. Mm. Um so that's when my parents taught skiing at Tremblant. Mm. Um, what, what I was also going to ask about is the, uh, the the one thing when I was doing a bit of my research is um, your your parents had to get one of the instructors to dress up as a clown to get you to ski. Is this true? Man, this is embarrassing. <laughs> Later on, when I was six and seven, they really wanted to... Because the, the thing you do here in Quebec... Not so much anymore, but back in the 80s, let's say, when I was growing up, is you would actually spend all weekend at the ski hill. So my parents would just drop me off. I'd walk out of the car with the the skis and ski poles and spend all day at the ski hill with my friends. Uh, We didn't have any supervision. It was just uh, take care of yourself, go skiing, Um, which is fine. I I actually learned to love skiing that way. Um, it was, it was early freedom (laughs) and, um, but to get to that point when I wasn't a very good skier because I fought it for years until I was seven and for some reason my mom, um, said, oh, today there's only a clown available for ski uh, lessons and I said, oh, okay, that's fine and the clown was so nice. He was such a good dude. And, um, uh, I got along with him great and we did lessons for, I don't even know how long now, but maybe an hour or two. And there was another instructor that was not a clown, uh, which I got the next day and I didn't like him at all. It was boring. <laughs> it was all technique and, um, just basically structure. And at seven, you don't necessarily like that. Mm. So, I told my mom, I only want that clown. <laughs> That's the only thing I want. So she got me the clown for the, the weekends after that. Um, and after a couple lessons, basically I was on my own. I could go join my friends and <laughs> I was all set. I think there's a business opportunity there. I think a, a clown <laughs> ski training school <laughs> to get young kids into skiing. You know what? I, I don't even know if we see them anymore. The, I, I don't recall seeing clowns at the, you know, there's uh, those scary clowns that go around nowadays. Oh, yeah. 
Um, so I guess there is a clown resurgence, but uh, not at the ski hill yet. <laughs> <laughs> and it was your brother which then introduced you to snowboarding, is that true? Yeah, um, partially. Um, there were two people that really had an influence. So my brother worked at the ski hill and worked at the, the rental shop. So he was able to borrow a snowboard from the shop and go snowboarding. And at school, my best friend, who actually, him and I, he and I did about, I think it was two, maybe even three Olympics together. Um, his name's Brett Carpentier. Um, at the time, like right in around 1998, he was pretty much the best the freestyle snowboarder in the world. Oh, wow. Um, and actually should have won the Olympics in 98, except um, he got docked with his score. And on the first run, there was two runs. And um, the second run, he had to kind of make up for it, made a little bobble and ended up, I think, sixth or so. And then for the Olympics in 2002, he was, a little, he was injured. Uh, so Brett did two Olympics, I guess. Um, but for a while there, he was the best in the world. But we went to high school together, and we were best friends. Mm. Um, and every time he'd come back from a weekend of snowboarding, at this point we're about 12, 13 years old, um, he'd just tell me all about it. We were little skate rats, you know, but we didn't, uh, I didn't snowboard, and my buddy Brett did. So all I could think about was snowboarding, snowboarding, snowboarding. But I hadn't done it. Um, so I was in love with the sport before I even set foot on one. And so I got my brother to give me lessons, um, except it, on his days off, he didn't want to teach his little brother how to snowboard. All he wanted to do was snowboard himself. So, um, he set me up with a snowboard and said, okay, just, you know, slide down on your toe side and your heel side and you'll be all right. And then he just split. So I was like, oh, this sucks. I'm here alone, just beating my head against the wall, never figure this out. And, but slowly, slowly but surely, I, um, I learned. Uh, I actually met friends on the hill as we're going down, learning and fumbling with it. Uh, I met people uh, that were about my age, and uh, I forget, like, uh, maybe four or five people. And we became really good friends. Uh, then we started competing together and everything. So I had this little group of four or five people at my local ski hill. Um, and we learned how to snowboard together all winter. Oh, amazing. Did any of them achieve uh, a, a good success in the sport? Uh, not that I recall. They did locally. Really good, actually. They, for some reason, the people I grew up with, that little crew of four or five people, uh we were the best in the province. Um, so, you know, Quebec might be 7 million people. That's, you know, it'll give you a size of the population pool. Uh, but for a while, we were the best in the province. Mm. Uh, but then, you know, careers and school kind of made people fall off this, the, the map for that, for snowboarding. Um, and I'm pretty much the only one that kept with it. And my buddy, Brett Carpentier, who I was... Uh, in high school with, he made a career out of it uh, mm. as well. He was more freestyle and I was more racing. So I did border cross and alpine and Brett was more half pipe. Ah, I see. And so, yeah, obviously you then moved on to 
doing it at the amazing level. That's why you're on the the, the best in the world. And your your first Olympic Games was 1998. Just how was that first experience for you? Uh, pretty surreal, actually. Um, back in the day, in 1998, uh, we did two-run finals. Um, at, uh, let's see here. It was, uh, yeah, it was basically a two-run day, just like skiing is. Now we do parallel, which is a round-robin elimination style. But in 1998, I won the first run of the Olympics. Um, so that means for the second run, you go uh, 16th. So the second run, I think the top 16 are reversed. So if you finish 16th in the first run, you go first in the second run. Mm. Um, so I, w- I went 16th um, and it, in the second run. But the weather was just, I remember for the first eight people in finals, the weather was good. And all of a sudden this cloud came in and they had all, you couldn't see at all. It was a big uh, whiteout. So it took, uh, from the eighth guy to me, it took another two hours before they ran uh, the finals. So the the hill just froze over and um, our boards back then weren't meant to be on ice. Uh, snowboards were more of a soft snow kind of construction, okay. um, so they didn't work on ice. So when I took my run, basically the, from the ninth guy to me, everyone fell on their face, and and also I froze up there. Didn't really know how to manage that, so for two hours I kind of sat around. I tried to move, and uh, basically every. 15, 20 minutes, they'd send an athlete, you know, and he'd just have a terrible run, and that was it. So my first experience was both hot and cold. First run, I was the best in the world. Second run, I just looked like a a, a donkey on a snowboard, you know, it was terrible. Uh, and you said you didn't know about how to manage yourself when you're at the top and you froze and everything like that. What eventually became your routine for that? Um, let's see here. Well, it's the only race I ever did where I had a a two hour wait before I could run again. Mm. Usually they'd cancel the race or any other race they would have canceled it. Even in Vancouver in 2010, they should have canceled that. Visibility was terrible. Um, except the, uh, when it's the Olympics, they run it. (laughs) (laughs) They rarely have the, the postponement window. There's so many events going on at the same time that they just can't. Um, and so you run it, you just go with what you got. So for management, uh, for me, it was always, you don't know what the variable is until you get it. (laughs) That's temperature for you. Um, it's tough because you don't want to bring up too much stuff with you. Um, and in snowboarding, we don't have that much, uh, staff and help, uh, except in 2010, because it was in Canada, Canada invested quite a bit of money in most of their sports to make sure all the, the targeted sports had enough staffing. Um, so that was better. Uh, but even at that, I don't like relying on too many people. I find, um, uh, having people around me is a distraction. Uh, I like relying on myself as much as possible to, uh, to get the job done. If I can get one really reliable person to help me, that's the best. Um, so 
but a lot of it is just dealing with the elements. You just learn to deal with it. Uh, when you stay warm and you, you move around, you burn a lot of energy also. So when you consider that in 2010 I had to do 10 runs in a day, uh, that's over the span of maybe, I think by the time I was finished, it was eight hours I was on the hill. Oh, wow. Um, so you really, you really deplete yourself. Um, and it's not, it's not like a, an Ironman. Um, but basically when you do a run, it's 45 seconds of everything you got. So if your muscles are frozen, you can hurt yourself. You can, there's a lot of stuff that can go wrong. Just the moves aren't as, uh, as nimble as they should be, uh, especially to be at your peak. So again, you just learn to deal with it where you're always moving, staying warm. You, uh, you try to so if you know you're going to be racing in about five minutes, well, you peak for that five minutes. Um, so you start your warm-up about five minutes before. You run around, do leg swings or little hill sprints, 10-step sprints. Uh, you do uh, quick feet work, all sorts of little things, tricks that help you. Um, so that's basically it. The Best in the World Podcast with Richard Parr. The conversation with JCJ will continue in just a moment, but I wanted to tell you about Patreon. Patreon is the site that we use so you can help support our show. If you like what we do, if you've appreciated some of the podcasts that you've listened to at The Best in the World with Richard Parr, where you've learned from Olympic champions and world champions, and you think, you know what, I'd like to listen to more of these episodes. And the only way we can really do more of these episodes is if we have your support. So if you want to support our show from as little as $1 a month, just head to patreon.com forward slash best in the world. Thank you very much. If you are already supporting us, it really, really matters a lot to us. And we really appreciate your support on this project. I hope you enjoy what we do. We enjoy creating it for you every single week. And you know what I enjoy? I enjoy listening to JCJ Anderson. So let's return to the conversation with the snowboarding Olympic champion. The Best in the World podcast with Richard Parr. In those early 2000s and after those uh, Nagano games, you absolutely dominated the sport for about four years from 2000, 2004, four consecutive overall snowboard World Cup titles. Uh, what just was going right in that in that time? What, what do you think made you the best in the world during those four years? Mm, that's a good question. Uh, mostly, see... My career was actually diverted a couple times. Um, if it wasn't for border cross, I would not have kept going as an athlete. So my career would have ended pretty quickly uh, after 1998. Oh, wow. um, and then border cross, I did for 10 years uh, and loved it. And then actually when border cross went through a transition, my alpine uh, racing was, started going much better. Uh, so then I, I think it was in 2007, I stopped border cross and kept going with Alpine. Uh, Alpine was always where my, 
where I was more passionate, um, mostly because the the carving aspect and the pure performance side of it uh, was more appealing to me. Border cross, although the obstacle course is fun, um, also the environment is quite an aggressive. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Uh, I mean, it says testosterone-filled is, you know, um, MMA. It's, as far as that goes, I, I never really could connect with the athletes because um, you're always... No matter who's ahead of you, you have hate for them, um, <laughs> which is something I could never appreciate. I, I like getting along with people and, um, you know, where basically you train, you race, you perform according to your level. But in border cross, there's so many factors that um, someone else could take you out. Um, and that happened a couple times. So in that golden period of, uh, of racing, a lot of it was because I had good support from my sponsors. So at that point, Burton Snowboards was, was my sponsor. Um, so I could afford to do more races, um, have the best coaching, all, everything made it so that I could peak. And then after, I'd, I'd say, well, Right around 2006 was actually the, the lowest point of my career where um, the equipment was just not there. Border cross boards were faster than mine, um, and alpine boards were faster than what I had. And I, I didn't even have access to the good boards. So what it came down to was always equipment. It was boards. What's fast, what's not. And I ended up with really, really slow equipment. Um, so although Burton, well, I probably shouldn't name any names, but the biggest manufacturer in the world, um, was my sponsor in supporting me and actually gave me good resources as far as, uh, 
financial resources. I had I did not have access to the fastest boards. Mm-hmm. Um, so in 2003, uh, right after the 2002 Olympics, I left Burton and I went to a uh, a local custom board builder in um, in Toronto in Canada. Um, so I were gone with the uh, the 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 high budget salary, and I decided to go for performance, um, which actually turned my life around. Uh, I went from someone that had absolutely no idea what a snowboard was, because um, even though as an athlete you want to be involved in the process, it's just not there, especially if you're a young athlete. The the companies don't want to teach you how to how to do it, especially if they don't even know anything. <laughs> they know they have some knowledge, but when I look back now, they didn't know anything. Mm. Um, so I did four years with uh, the company out of Toronto, where I learned so much. Um, we still couldn't replicate the we couldn't compete with the fastest snowboards in the world, but we sure got close and we learned a lot. So then I did the 2006 Olympics where, again, you know, that was one of the lowest points of my career. I had more knowledge, quite a bit of knowledge, except we just couldn't compete with what was fastest. Mm -hmm. So then um, in 2007, after the 2006 Olympics, the Swiss uh, snowboards Kessler opened up to everyone. Uh, So I was able to get snowboards from Kessler. Um, and that started me winning races again in Alpine snowboarding. So all the way to 2010, I stayed on Kessler. Um, I learned a little bit, but Kessler is a vault. That guy doesn't say anything. He's a super (laughs) nice guy, makes the best boards as far as, uh, uh, overall performance. And, uh, but extremely frustrating to get any information. Mm. So... Then I was able to reach through his boards and other things also. We, um, uh, we developed a plate system, uh, how should I say, through those years that was actually the number one uh, plate system. It's a little bit complicated unless I'm showing you, but it's basically a snowboard and then you have a, a skateboard looking thing on top of it under your feet but above the board. So okay. it's a... It's a bridge plate, um, and it's an absorption plate. It's uh, it actually creates more energy. There's a lot to it. It's a quite complex uh, piece of equipment. Uh, so for 2010, we developed a better board, a better plate, and I was in peak form for that. Let's say because three years of doing technique, uh, you know, you have a terrible board, but technically you're there and you're always working out, you're fit, you're agile, you're, let's say, somewhat talented. Um, you can get the job done to a certain extent, but definitely not as much as when you have a golden piece of equipment under your feet. Hmm. But in the end, that's what brought me to uh, to uh, Olympic gold. And then my career got completely different after 2014. Uh, I mean, after 2010, sorry. Okay, well, 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 I want to ask about that as well, but let, let's just talk about those 2010 games. And it must have been a relief then that you don't even have to think about equipment anymore and you can just concentrate 
on performance and we've already talked about the socks and everything like that now i was yeah. i was watching back this final uh before i did the interview with you today and you were what was it 0.76 seconds behind after the first run and as you've already mentioned it was the the thickest snow it was not very good conditions just what was going through your mind in in that second run oh that was um there's a whole story attached to that also that's really interesting um do you have an hour <laughs> I'll, I'll try to shorten it here okay what please. it comes down to is um let's see here so all day through the nine original runs i could ride you know 90 percent, and i was winning runs um so, ah, okay, if I only have to ride 90% and I'm winning, so I'll just keep it at that. Why risk it? Um, and in my last or second to last run, I was like, okay, well, now I'm against the world number one. I should probably turn it up a notch. Um, and because of the first run at 90%, I ended up uh, three quarters of a second behind, which is a huge gap. And how should I say I wasn't my equipment actually wasn't completely uh, dialed in until the last training day before the Olympics in 2010 oh wow and again this was a little bit strange because my last training day was four days before the Olympics so for four days I didn't ride um, and I'm a guy that has to ride a lot to get his um, his feeling uh, tuned so for me, it was one of the worst scenarios possible. And at the Olympics, there was so little snow that you couldn't really ride um, to, to warm up. Uh, you couldn't. That's, that was it. So my first run was actually a race run qualifiers. And I, the first run of the day, I was 20th. I wasn't even qualifying for finals. Um, so, you know, I had probably 20 family members at the bottom of the hill that were going, oh, God, this is probably like all the other Olympics where you're just going to shank it, um, especially my poor wife, because um, I'd been winning a lot that season in the World Cup, but Olympics are always different. Mm. And so she expected the worst. And so I tweaked my, uh, my setup a little bit for second run, and I ended up winning that run, which qualified me in... 10th place, which was enough for finals. Finals are top 16. Um, so what a relief that was. Um, at least I could, I saw that I could win a run and I could, uh, that I could ride properly. Visibility was terrible. So you had to rely on feel, rely on so many things that were basically Hail Marys every time. Um, and because of that, because even in the finals, I just switched everything. I switched my board, my plate, everything, but to a more aggressive system, uh, a system that wasn't dialed, like I said, until four days before I left for the Olympics. Um, so my confidence with the equipment wasn't there yet. But as I'm going through the runs, I'm thinking, okay, well, I can do this, and uh, it's going well enough. And for the last run, I... I I knew that I had to have all the confidence in the world in my equipment. So even if I had the slightest doubt, I had to put that aside. And th this is where I had a bit of a, an epiphany, we'll say. Because 
perspective in life is um, is key. It's number one. It's what will determine if you're happy or not. Um, and as an athlete, you're usually never happy. Um, you always want more and more and more. And you think um, if, uh, you think that happiness is winning races, and it is for a little bit, for a little while. But it's it doesn't complete you. So there's many other factors, and because um, as an athlete, you're a, you're extremely uh, self-centered. You're always looking out for your own best interest, which is a little bit contradictory, you know, to what life should be. It should be a little bit more altruistic, but it's not. Uh, basically, the whole world revolves around you. Your coach works for you. Your physiotherapist. Even your friends all want to make sure you're in peak performance uh, for the the races. Um, so you just get used to that. But um, leading up to the Olympics in 2010, because I had uh, failed at three previous Olympic attempts, um, a lot of the professionals tell you you have to eliminate all the, the factors that could go wrong. And they say that one huge uh, source of stress can be the parents or family. And they, they tell you, uh, don't be afraid to ask your parents to stay at home for the Olympics um, if you think they could be a source of stress. And for me, my awesome, wonderful parents were at all the Olympics. So I figured, oh, maybe it is that, you know, that, that was a distraction. So I was actually going to ask my mom to uh, to stay at home for the Olympics that were in Canada, which you know was kind of absurd at the time. But at the same time, I just really wanted to attack all these variables. Mm. So we're I'm hiking in the woods with my mom, uh, you know, just for training and for fun. And we were talking about the lead up to Vancouver, and I said, "Oh, mom, you know, I really wanted to talk to you about Vancouver." Uh, and she said, son, I'm going to stop you right there. She said, I know exactly what you're going to ask me. And I'm not going to let you do that. I, she said, look at it from my perspective, not yours. <laughs> Which was the cutest thing ever. I was like, oh, okay, well, let's hear it. And um, she said, I've been supporting you, loving you, caring for you, doing everything possible as a loving mom to... Um, to make sure you had everything you need for life, for your career, for anything. And you're asking me to stay at home uh, for the only Olympics that you're going to do in your own country. Um, she said, I'm not going to let you do that. And I actually felt so cheap um, for asking her after she said that. Um but basically, she gave me a lesson in perspective at that point. Um, if, I'll give you an example. You can get into a car crash, and you can think, oh, my Lord, I hope my car is all right. Or you could think, thank God I'm okay. Mm. You have the choice. That's perspective. So the happy people will say, oh, thank God I'm okay. Or thank God the other person's okay. But the unsatisfied person will say, oh, my car, um, the unhappy person. And 
as an athlete, you can choose which one you're going to be. You can either deal with adversity or you can uh, bury it. But the person that buries it will always have a resurgence at some point. Um, and it will always bite them. Whether it's the person that has the perspective that um, everything will be okay and you're there for the journey, not necessarily just the result, that's where you get true um, benefits from being an athlete. Mm. And in this case, at, I was at the top of the hill in Vancouver in 2010 for my last run. I was behind by three quarters of a second. And I asked myself, what is the most important thing in the world? And the easiest answer was my two little girls. I had two daughters that were babies at the time, uh, maybe three and four years old. No matter what happened, they were waiting for me at the bottom of the hill with arms wide open. And I was the best in the world. So even if I had come in last or fourth or any other result, I get to the bottom of that run and I'm the best in the world. They would say, Papa, t'es le meilleur au monde. And uh, it kind of choked me up. I figured that's, that's perspective. And here I am. I'm cold. I'm absolutely drenched wet because it's been raining all day. I can't see anything. Um, even at that point, the start gate, the gate that opens uh, to let you out, uh, was uh, there was a, a problem with it. The, the sound was broken. And the sound is the most important thing. So there's a series of beeps. Beep, 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 beep. And on that fourth beep, you've got to time it perfectly or you're losing time. Especially if you're behind by three quarters of a second, you want to nail that start. Um, so I had to rely purely on these little lights that you don't even look at because when you pull back to do your start, your head is down. So you need the sound. But when they told me the start gate wasn't going to work, I said, I thought of my mom, I thought of my kids. I was like, this is for me. Any problem that could arise, like the temperature, any type of pressure, even if that's my family at the bottom, a start gate doesn't work. It's all for me. Adversity is for me. I thrive on adversity as a true athlete should. And that little piece of perspective came from my mom. And I got to the bottom and I had one of the best runs of my life. Uh, it was effortless. I had confidence in everything I was doing. Um, it was really an enlightening moment of perspective. Mm, that's absolutely amazing. And I know we're running out of time, JC, but I just really want to quickly ask you, you said everything changed after those games. What, what did you mean? Uh, I, I was actually, I started living uh, a career through the journey as opposed to the result. So if you look at my results from 2010 on, well, I took a season off. Um, I started a snowboard company because I, I was just obsessed with equipment. I needed the knowledge and I needed, um, I needed to create something. And uh, I had to test my own equipment. So when I went back on tour, I sacrificed everything uh, as far as results. So the most important thing was to have the knowledge and to apply it to the snowboards, let's say, that I'm either selling or that I'm building. I don't build that many boards. I build uh, about not even 100 boards a year. Um, and about a third of those 
uh, no, actually half of those are for development purposes. <laughs> mm. So I don't make money with my snowboard company, but it's there so that I can learn. And it's been uh, seven years since I started this company. And the journey has been fantastic. Hardly any results. When I have to, when it's a key race that I have to get something done, I pull out, okay, this, that, and I make it happen. But if I don't need to, I don't. I sacrifice every race to get the information, which is an, ex uh, it's an extreme in humility. Uh, you, it's a hard pill to swallow at first, but at one point you just get used to it. And when you finish 40th, eh, it's okay. Um, you, at least you know why you finished 40th. Um, but you got the information through the racing. Mm. Uh, because race conditions are much different than just free riding or training conditions. So it's the only place in the world you can get specific information. So after 2010, all results are sacrificed for information. So even in this coming February in, in Pyeongchang in South Korea, it will still always be about learning about the board, learning about the performance and, and being humble rather than necessarily going for gold. Um, like I said, there's key events. So the Olympics, I actually do the best I can, but I'm always racing on what I have at hand. I won't race on uh, a competitor's equipment. So if I know, let's say, another board, another plate is faster, I'm not going to use that. Um, except, uh, so in a way, yes, I do sacrifice the result, even at the Olympics, um, to get the information. But I do the best I can at the key events with the with the information at hand mm. well joseph j it's been so good to talk to you there there are a few more other questions but i know we've run out of time but it's been really fascinating and and to hear all of this insight of, of what things have happened throughout your career and what things have changed it's been absolutely fantastic you've been an absolute pleasure to speak to um before we go why don't you let us know where we can learn more about you on social media and online and anything like that and so we can find out more about your boards as well please oh i'm so sorry i don't do enough of that i don't do any actually i have a facebook um jcj snowboards um, but you know, if I update it once a year, that's good. <laughs> so I try to be active, but at the same time, I'm just really buried in, um, in finding technical knowledge uh, that I don't really worry about sales or, uh, or, um, social media. Mm. Well, the, the quality speaks for itself, doesn't it? But JCJ snowboards, um, is, a place where you can get tidbits of information perfect well i'll make sure we put a link to that anyway even if it's not been updated for a year but uh it's been so okay. it's been so good to talk to you jcj thank you for being on the program and thank you for being the best in the world thank you richard the best in the world podcast with richard parr I think we'll all agree we learned a lot from JCJ on this week's Best in the World with Richard Barr. If you are a snowboarding fan, maybe go back and listen to my conversation very recently with Patricia Kuma. She has been on the podcast. I've also spoken to another snowboarder in the form of Gretchen Blyler. That's quite an older one. So go back to the archives at acast.com forward slash best or at sportachino.com or on iTunes or on Stitcher. 
to go back and listen to them. And maybe if you just want to listen to a few random episodes, maybe just some other sports where you want to learn from the very best. I'll mention a couple which I don't very often mention but are very, very good. We've got the judo world champion, Guillaume Elmont. He's been on the program before. A really good one is with Katarina Stefanidi, the pole vaulter. She was fantastic on The Best in the World with Richard Parr. So why don't you go back and listen to them. They're all on the archives and I think you'll really appreciate what you learn from those champions. All right, that's it for this week's episode of The Best in the World with Richard Parr. If you do get a chance to support us, please head to patreon.com forward slash best in the world. But that's it for this episode. I'll speak to you next week. Goodbye. The Best in the World podcast with Richard Parr.